You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Uh, Hebrews 4, 14 through chapter 5 and verse 10. As you make your way there, uh, we have been looking at five marks of the gospel-shaped life. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at uh, the fourth mark, and that is a growing commitment to prayer. Uh, A growing commitment to prayer is crucial to a gospel-shaped life. Uh, So follow along as I read. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men, and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus's life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So as we come to this passage and with the thought of a growing commitment to prayer being a part of the gospel-shaped life. We're going to look at prayer from the perspective of prayer being a privilege, uh, prayer being worship, and then prayer as a rewarding work. So prayer as a privilege, prayer as worship, and then prayer as a rewarding work. Uh, Keep in mind that this letter of Hebrews is written to primarily two groups of people. Uh, One group are believers, uh, those who are in the church, but are also facing discouragement, uh, growing weary in their faith because of circumstances going on, possibly escalating pockets of persecution. Uh, So the letter is addressing that group. It's also addressing those who we might refer to as people who are playing church. Uh, they, they, they seem to be a part of the fellowship. They showed up, they participated, but, but the reality of their faith was questionable. Uh, in other words, they, they were not living a gospel-shaped life. And so the letter is intended to, in a sense, 
comfort and encourage the first group, believers, sort of shake and challenge the second, who are merely playing church, but not really being the church. And so with that in mind, let's look, first of all, at what it means to speak of prayer as a privilege. Um, and so you notice verse 14 begins with the word, therefore. We already know that that always points us back to what was previously said, because he's making some kind of connection to what he had said earlier. So there's a conclusion here, because of something, we now can come and should see prayer as a privilege. And so if you were to glance just briefly at Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, you remember that Hebrews 1 starts out by saying, in the past, God spoke through the prophets, but now he has spoken through Jesus Christ, the exact representation of the Father. In Hebrews 2, you start to have the superiority of Christ over Moses being presented and continue to be worked out when you see chapter 3 begins and interesting refers to Jesus Christ as the apostle and our high priest, the one sent from God with ultimate authority and our high priest. So that's the connection between what was said earlier and now this conclusion that helps us see prayer from a different perspective. Uh, and that is prayer is a privilege, first of all, because of the identification of who your great high priest is. Uh, and so it's assumed here that the people receiving this letter knew, knew about the Old Testament priesthood. They understood how there was this appointment of an individual, uh, and that individual represented you before God. And so this letter is building on that common knowledge, saying now you have Jesus Christ, who is the perfect high priest. And you notice the wording there in verse 14, we have a great high priest. Not that we are looking to have a great high priest, or we hope that we will have a great high priest. We have one. Uh, in Christ you possess. This should be a reality in your life and my life when, when we approach God in prayer. We know Jesus Christ is our great high priest. So in this identification, verse 14 also includes two important titles. He is Jesus, the Son of God. Uh, that he is Jesus, he is Yeshua, the one who saves, but he is also the Son of God, one who is fully God and fully man. So we suddenly realize the extent in which we are coming before one who has no limits. To his resources. Um, as a lot of education has moved to remote learning right now, one of the benefits is that a lot of internet platforms, a lot of organizations, even Christian ministries have granted free access to many of their resources. But those that access is of a limited duration. Many of them are saying will end June 1st. Contrast that with the writer of Hebrews is presenting us with free access to an unlimited source, an unlimited duration, because Jesus, the Son of God. And you notice as you read further in verses 14 and 15, uh, the functions of a priest in the Old Testament uh, could be narrowed down to two, to intercede 
on behalf of the people before God and to offer sacrifices. And so we see that Jesus Christ has performed the ultimate by not just offering a sacrifice, but himself being the very perfect sacrifice that would satisfy the justice and wrath of God. This is the high priest that we presently have in Jesus Christ. And so that starts to make us think about prayer is a privilege because the Old Testament didn't have that same kind of access as we saw in Exodus 19. And throughout the Old Testament, there is that narrowing of access to God. Only through the priest, only the high priest could enter the most holy place. All of that now has been fulfilled in Christ where access is unlimited. It is free access by grace. But you also notice in this opening section the qualifications of Jesus Christ as high priest. Uh, and those qualifications set him apart from any that preceded him, which were all to be a foreshadowing of what we would find completely fulfilled in Christ. And so notice verse 15. And speaking of the qualifications, we have one is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Uh, he has been there. Uh, he knows our difficulties. He knows our temptations and trials. Uh, and there's a distinctiveness in which Christ faced temptations. Unlike us, he did not have a sinful nature. Uh, but he certainly faced external temptations by Satan and attacks. So he can understand our struggles. So we have a great high priest who is qualified. Why? He can sympathize. He has suffered with us as the God-man. Notice as well, you continue in verse 15. Uh, he acts as our perfect representative. Uh, this comes out even more in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God. So he sympathized. He is the perfect representation of us and yet was without sin, which could not be said of any Old Testament priest. Uh, even of Moses, as great a leader he was, he was still a sinner. Uh, and that was a reality that his people would know. He was not perfect. Uh, but yet in Christ, we have one who is perfect, yet as the God-man could fully stand in our place as our representative. And then it mentions, once again, gifts. Go down to chapter 5, verse 4. No one takes his honor upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. A high priest must be called. Think back when Isaiah has the reference to the servant of God coming, that he will be one who is chosen and called by God. Jesus Christ is called by God and is our great high priest. And then in verse 5 and 6, you have the superiority of Christ, which will continue to be presented throughout through chapter 7 of Hebrews, where it references two psalms. Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm, fulfilled in Christ, as well as Psalm 110, uh, where Jesus Christ is in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, an interesting figure, a figure for another time and study, 
but one who is both a described as a king, a king of righteousness, a king of peace, as well as a priest. So in Jesus Christ, we have one who is our prophet, our priest, and our king, the perfect high priest, which says to us, if that is the reality that we live in, why we should see prayer as a privilege, not, not just as something you should do, not just as a duty, although it is a duty, it is a responsibility. Um, but I think sometimes the reason it's a neglected privilege is we really don't see it as a privilege. We don't stop and consider that, that what we are doing is impossible without Jesus Christ. Stephen Charnack in his uh, Attributes and Existence of God makes a statement that for every Christian, when you go to prayer, you should stop and think about the fact that what you are doing at that moment would be completely impossible without Jesus Christ. Completely impossible. And I think if we were to get that mindset into our thinking, it would alter how we view prayer. If we would consciously think that as I bend my, my head, as I bow and come before God, that, that this is amazing that I can do this. And that's one of the reasons we read from Exodus 19 to remind ourselves the people were fearful. They, they did not want to go into God's presence. And neither should we feel that we want to, are able to go into God's presence without knowing we have a mediator, a great high priest. So if the gospel-shaped life is the practice of prayer, then we need to see prayer as a privilege. But the writer of Hebrews also wants to teach us that prayer is worship. Uh, and notice I didn't say all prayer. Uh, because there are prayers that are not worshipful. Uh, and many writers in the past kind of referred to some, this form of prayer as being the prayer of a hypocrite. In other words, there are people who pray. Uh, that doesn't mean it's worshipful, because we need to stop and ask ourselves, what does the prayer of a hypocrite look like? What is the prayer of one who is simply wearing a mask, going through the motions, which, which many in the church, in the time tech, in the kind context of Hebrews were doing. Um, Hebrews 6 reminds us of, of people who reap some of the benefits of being associated with God's people, but they really were not truly believers. So I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, where you have an example of prayer that is not worshipful. Matthew chapter 6, and we'll look at verses 5 through 8. It's a very early in Jesus's ministry. Uh, he directs these words primarily to his disciples. This is in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, but uses as an illustration the prayer life of Pharisees. Uh, we have Luke in Luke 18 talking about the prayer of, of a, a right a Pharisee in the temple, but they're prayers of hypocrites. Uh, but follow along as I read Matthew 6 and verses 5 through 8. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. 
To tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. What a, what a picture to remind us that the prayer that is more performance, not personal, is the prayer of a hypocrite. A uh, prayer that desires to be heard in terms of how people will view that and think of us are empty and meaningless prayers. Prayers that simply sound good and use the right words, but without meaning, are meaningless. And so this is not condemning public prayer, but it's reminding us that if prayer is a privilege and prayer is worship, that corporate prayer grows out of private and personal prayer. And so in other words, you can, in essence, say, you can tell a lot about a person and their walk with Christ by their willingness and how they pray publicly. Uh, that, that if we have a resistance to praying together with one another, that probably reveals we're not really praying privately. We're not going to the Lord secretly. And so when we speak of prayer being worship, we're immediately putting up a, a warning there to anyone who might confuse this. Because prayer, as the Puritans would like to say, prayer that is seasonal is not worshipful. Prayer that is done sporadically is not worshipful. And so now we want to look at, well, what, what does prayer that is worshipful look like? Uh, what attitudes should it convey or express? Uh, and the writer of Hebrews helps us in that response. Notice verse 14, thinking about the reality of a great high priest. In verse 14, it simply says, that our great high priest has gone through the heavens. In other words, prayer that is worshipful will exalt the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Christ is exalted here when it says he has gone through the heavens. In other words, not just a reference to his ascension, but, but his re reference to his ascension into the Father's presence, where he reigns and rules right now. Notice in verse 16 of Hebrews 4, a very comforting verse, you know, as we approach the throne of grace, but don't lose sight, don't just focus on the grace, which is very comforting for all of us in Christ, but pay attention to the throne. He, he is on the throne, and if prayer does not recognize that, then it's not worshipful prayer. This, this is the same throne room that you can read about in Revelation 4 and 5, where, where you have the 24 elders, these, these angelic beings who are full of knowledge but not omniscient, bowing down before the Father and the Son. We have the four elders there, again, angelic creatures, that they too are bowing down. And there's this antiphonal sort of response you know, holy, holy, holy is the Lord 
God Almighty. That's the throne that you are coming before in prayer in the name of Christ. So if prayer is to be worshipful, it exalts Christ. It keeps this throne in its proper perspective as we choose our words carefully, as we're not guilty of thinking that somehow the amount of words we use or the, the theological jargon we try to incorporate is, is going to impress or move God. It must be prayer from the heart. And certainly it can conclude scripture. It can include phrases and words that characterize what God has done for us in Christ. But it must be from the heart if it's to be worshipful. And then notice down in chapter 5, verse 6, the recognition in prayer that Christ is a priest forever. That he provides intercession for you and for me. And he is a king who reigns and rules and will be returning to judge. These two Psalms that are quoted are filled with the implications of what Christ has accomplished and will accomplish at the completion of all time. That's good for us to keep that in mind as we come before the Lord in prayer. But prayer that is worshipful must also do something else. It must acknowledge our sinfulness, that, that we are a people who, who don't just stand in need of a Savior for salvation. We stand in need of a Savior every single day for our sanctification, for, for our growth in Christ. And you see this again in Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. Notice the words used to describe you and me. And even the priests of Israel's day. In verse 15, we have the reference to he can sympathize with our weaknesses, our, our frailties, uh, our sinful nature that continues to be something that we each have to battle. Probably especially to in prayer. Uh, we've all had this happen where we start praying and our minds wander off in a bunch of different directions. Uh, we think of everything we want to get done today, and we start saying, well, let me break for a minute. Let me write this down. I don't want to forget it. Uh, difficulties in praying without being selfish, without only thinking about what we want, rather than what is God's desire or plan. So it describes the one who is our intercessor as being sensitive to the fact that we are marked by weaknesses, by a sinful nature. Notice it goes on and says that we are those who uh, are tempted. And our intercessor understands this because he was tempted, but yet he did not sin. So we're not just weak. We're also prone to temptation, prone to wander and drift off, even during a, a Zoom meeting like this. Or maybe you've done Zooms for work and you can see people kind of closing their cameras sometimes for a little bit wanting to zone out, uh, we wander in our thoughts, in our commitment to prayer. And so we see here that we're weak, we're tempted. Notice verse 16 at the end there. We can call out to him for grace to help us in our time of need. We have to acknowledge that we are a needy people. 
we, we need Christ to shepherd us because like sheep, we will drift off on our own. We, we will go our own way rather than following his way. And then you go down to chapter five, verse two. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray. Two more words that describe even the body of Christ. Uh, there are times we're just ignorant of God's word. Um, there are times we willfully ignore God's word. Uh, and we also are, again, as I've said, prone to be going astray. Uh, that was what was happening when this letter was written, that there were believers that were starting to drift away from the faith due to discouragement. And it can be easy for us, even in Christ today, uh, to become discouraged by, you know, how long are we going to have to remain sort of isolated like this? How long before we get to do the things we enjoy uh, and such that we can grow weary and discouraged? And so we can identify that not only is Christ our great high priest, he knows us. And he knows where we're each coming from. And so we see that for prayer to be worshipful, it must adore Christ, must worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we must be realized of our own sinfulness. And in that context, then we come before him with excitement, because as verse 16 of chapter 4 tells us, so that we may receive and find mercy and grace in our time of need. As I kind of ask you, as you think about your personal private prayers, do they reflect this? Do, do they somehow capture in them your understanding that, that you are a great sinner, but that Christ is a greater Savior? Because that's what makes prayer worship. And so we shouldn't think prayer is just a filler in the service something that begins it, something that ends it. But if we are praying secretly correctly, we will have a desire to pray corporately correctly. And so we see that vital connection. But the writer of Hebrews would also want us to take into account that not just that prayer is a privilege and that prayer is worship, uh, but prayer is a rewarding work. And as so I want to start with the second word there, not rewarding, but the first one, that prayer is work. Uh, and you notice in verse 15, <clears throat> mentions there, or excuse me, in verse <clears throat> 14, uh, we come to Jesus Christ, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. And to hold firmly means to, to cling to, to seize, but that would imply that we're facing opposition. Uh, that if prayer is so vital and central, <clears throat> it would make sense. So that would be the one area that Satan would want to disarm us in. And prayer is going to be work. And we see this in chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, where it mentions the prayer life of Christ. And I want you to think about what is this referring to when in verse 7 it says, during the days of Jesus's life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death 
and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Is it possible that Jesus, as the Son of God, fully human and fully God, that prayer involved a battle? Because it mentions here with loud cries and tears. Now, you could look at that and say, well, maybe specifically that's referring to the Garden of Gethsemane scene. And it may primarily be a reference to that. There Jesus called out to the Father in agony over the, the punishment of sin that he would bear, over the fact that he would experience the father withdrawing his blessings from his son to an extent that none of us can even fathom nor none of us will ever have to endure because of what Christ has done for us and our confession of faith in him. But I wonder if part of this is also a reflection on not just that one scene in Christ's life, but the commitment that he had to prayer himself where we often read where he went off by himself to pray, where at the death of Lazarus, he, he weeps and he calls out to the Father. That is it possible the writer of Hebrews is giving us this glimpse into Christ's prayer life to say, if you think prayer is going to be easy, then you're missing what prayer really is. That prayer is a rewarding work. It, it is a labor because it will be challenged. And it sort of reminds me that prayer is not just coming with petitions on our, for our own personal needs, but we will wrestle at times as we pray for the needs of others, where we should feel their distress and discomfort, where we should be moved to tears as we plead with God for him to work in the lives of other people. Yeah, Paul mentioning to us in his letter to the church in Colossae uh, that he's so thankful for this guy named Epaphras. And he gives him one of the highest commendations. He says, this man wrestles in prayer for you. But he says first that Epaphras is a servant which I think tells us something. You will not wrestle in prayer unless you are a true servant of God. And so therefore you could call into question if you've never wrestled in prayer over the needs of others, if you've never agonized as you've prayed for something over and over again, then do you really understand prayer? Because to be a servant of God means you will at times and hopefully more and more come to understand what it means to wrestle in prayer. And so we see in this example to us that prayer is work. We, we are not to play at prayer, just like we're not to play at doing church. And I think for many of us, it is easy sometimes to play at prayer. If you've been a Christian for a certain number of years, <clears throat> you know how to pray. You, you know the kind of rough words to use. 
<clears throat> you know, how to start your prayer, you know, how maybe to end it nicely in Jesus' name. But, but do we stop and think about why we're saying it's in Jesus' name? Because as we started out, prayer is a privilege. This would be impossible without the work of Christ. But a prayer is not something we agonize over at times. And I'm not talking about just the difficulty of setting time aside, but, but as you pray, you're searching for words. Uh, you find that you're moved to pray for the growth of other Christians, for people who don't know Christ. If you're not agonizing in that, if somehow there's not a groaning that's taking place, then, then you're not praying. And so we see that prayer, though, is not just hard work, but it's rewarding work. Because notice in this passage, you have the fact that as we pray, we will be able to hold firmly to our faith in Christ. And whether that be the challenges of a post-COVID world, whether that be sickness or, or something that happens to you or to your family, whether it be injuries that occur in your family, uh, whether it be deaths that affect you, that you will be able to hold firmly to your faith through prayer. You'll be able to find what you need in Christ in that moment by going to God in prayer, because God himself has promised that to us. And so we should feel confident in praying the scriptures because prayer is rewarding because it advances the work and kingdom of God. Prayer advances the work and kingdom of God. And I, and I worded that carefully because I think for all of us sometimes, we think of prayer as just meeting my needs. I have my needs and I pray about that and it's great, God meets my needs. But, but that's really not the point and goal of prayer. Prayer is not just to satisfy your needs. It is to advance the kingdom of God. It is to exalt the glory of God. Prayer is not about you. It is about God. Interesting that Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples later on in his ministry, would say to them, look, look at the fields, they're white unto harvest, and probably you could tell me the next thing he says is, pray. Pray that God would raise up and send out workers. What a connection between prayer and advancing the work and kingdom of God. He does not tell his disciples, start forming committees. He does not say to them, let's all think about this and have a Zoom meeting sometime later in the week. He says, you need to start praying. Because prayer is a rewarding work. And I wonder if Paul was including prayer when towards the end of his life and ministry in 2 Timothy, he not only says he has fought the good fight, but then he says, I look forward to the crown of righteousness that awaits all those who look forward to the Lord's return. And isn't that what we are looking forward to in prayer? When that communion and conversation with God will not be between earth and heaven, but will be between heaven and heaven. When we are in his presence, when we see him as he is, that's the goal. 
Prayer is preparing that kingdom. And so that should excite all of us. But there are some things that maybe we can do to have a growing commitment to prayer. One would be simply watch for excuses that you sometimes give for not praying like we should. Whether that be business, whether it be I'm, I'm just too tired, uh, I have a lot to do today, I'll make up for it tomorrow. Watch for those excuses. And, and don't just put those off and say, well, that's okay. Or to be thinking, well, I pray more than some other people in my church. You know, don't make excuses. So watch for excuses. Pray the scriptures. I know sometimes uh, I was listening to one person talk about prayer. And they were saying, you know, sometimes we feel like we pray the same old things and say it the same old way. And one of the things we can do is incorporate more scripture into your prayer. Maybe take a psalm and, and just take a line in that psalm and, and use that in your prayer. Because there are similar things we will pray about every day. And that's not wrong. But I think we can pray about them in new ways that inject deeper meaning into our prayers. So rather than maybe praying, well, Lord, you know, today be with me. I have these things to do. Maybe stop and say, Lord, you know, it says in Psalm 23, you are my shepherd. Let me pray about what that means to say that the Lord is my shepherd. Now, what is the job of a shepherd? How, God, today can you lead me to spiritual food? Well, let me read your word. How can you watch over me in maybe some tough situations or decisions that need to be made at work today? Try to incorporate God's word into your prayers. We can also consciously think about prayer as a privilege. And since prayer is going before the throne of grace, maybe we could even be so bold and honest to say, God, give me a greater passion and commitment to pray. That, that I need that, that, that I'm kind of lazy in this area. Uh, I, and here are maybe things that I struggle with when I try to come before you. I get distracted. I, my mind wanders. Uh, whatever it might be, ask the one on the throne of grace to give you what he's asking of you. Because as that's one of the amazing things of prayer, God gives us that which he requires of us. And so I hope this will help us in analyzing our own lives and say, when it comes to prayer, are we displaying a growing commitment to prayer? Because your secret, your private prayer life will determine your corporate prayer life.